our organization works directly with prosecutors who are not only doing their day-to-day work, but want to think about some of those past cases. You know, there are times we all reflect and think about a person that we may have recommended for a sentence or a person that we may have prosecuted. And what are they doing now? How are they doing? Have they been released? If they've been released, are they doing better? Have they reoffended? We just never have the ability, the way the system is built, to think about it or to hear about success stories of how people are doing. So this organization allows prosecutors through a, a legal mechanism to go back and look at past cases, look at where a person may have been sentenced to an incredibly long sentence to which the office would just never ask for a sentence of that length anymore, or where a person has undergone serious rehabilitation and may deserve a second look and allows prosecutors to be part of that process at looking at those cases and hearing the humanity of people while also weighing really important factors of public safety. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnas. Our guest today is the Senior National Attorney at For the People, an organization that supports prosecutors to look back at past sentences and safely bring people home from prison. In her role, she spearheads prosecutor-initiated resentencing efforts and drives national policy expansion. With a background as an assistant United States attorney and a deep commitment to pro bono work, this lawyer brings an important and holistic perspective to the concept of justice. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Pooja Bhatia. Pooja, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited about the work that you're doing, and I'm very excited for our listeners to hear all about it. But before we start, I'd love to start with a little bit of gratitude. So if you can tell me what is your favorite thing that's happened so far today? I was thinking about that because I'm on the West Coast. So, you know, I've only had a couple of hours, but most of my hours this morning were with my two and a half year old daughter. There was this great moment where we were eating oatmeal together and I prepared her oatmeal and told her, okay, start eating. And she told me, mama, I'm going to wait for you. And that may seem like a really simple thing, but it was the first time she said it and it felt very mature and very emotionally sensitive. It made me really happy and then went about the day. It shows that she was considering you and wanted to wanted you to participate in the breakfast together. It is so spectacular that they can go from moments of just being very self-consumed to being very thoughtful and loving and then back to that first emotion right away. <laughs> but but you got to savor. You got to savor the really good moment. Thank you for sharing that gratitude. That was awesome. So let's do it. What's your lawyer origin story? How did it all start for you? And how did you get to where you are today? My origin story, I'm from, a, you know, an Indian family. My parents immigrated here in the late 70s. And for them, it was really important for their kids to really be steeped in having confidence in themselves. 
So very early on, my dad would take me to city council meetings, would have me watch the nightly news. And then being part of the Rotary Club uh, was really important. He, he enrolled me when I was in an elementary school. And my mom was the same. She had me do speech and debate since I was in middle school and really carried that through. I think that there was a part of themselves that as immigrants, they didn't feel the confidence in talking to people or in public speaking that they really wanted to instill in me and my siblings. And so that sort of took root. And my brothers are much older than me. My oldest brother is a lawyer. So it was always just a natural thing to really like think about. There's someone in my life who's a lawyer and that seems interesting. But I think for me, my angle of going to law school was really shaped by my interest in government and systems, systems that are meant to help people, and then looking at systems when they fail people. And so my route to law school included working on campaigns and working for elected officials to better understand government, to understand what constituent services meant, how things were very bureaucratic, but then how you could also cut through red tape and find real solutions to people's problems. And so when I went to law school, I left California to go to D.C. because it is the land of government. I was so excited, but I was also nervous because I wondered if I needed to instead get my master's in public policy. I didn't quite know why I was going to law school. And I was pretty sure I was going to end up working on the Hill after law school. I didn't think I was actually going to practice law because government and politics was really where my passion was. But I did it. And I am so grateful that I did. I also never thought I would end up at a law firm. I think my career is a lot of like things I didn't end up thinking of. I would do that I did. And it was this great intersection of being in law, but I was also in the public policy practice group at my firm, as well as litigation practice group. And in the public policy practice group, we did work where private entities or nonprofit organizations were basically intersecting with the government, whether it was in a campaign finance context, whether it was gift giving, whether it was lobbying. It was best understanding not only the laws, but also sort of the systems in place and the ways that our clients could and could not interact with government officials. So it was wonderful because it was my first sort of entree into the legal field and like how that intersects with government. And what kind of work did you do in the litigation practice group? We did white collar criminal defense work. And this required me going into the D.C. jail. This required me really looking at the ways in which our clients had been prosecuted, looking at some of the legal arguments to potentially challenge their conviction or to best protect them while they were being prosecuted. That sort of like laid the foundation for me unintentionally um, of going to the U.S. attorney's office and becoming a prosecutor in D.C., Never thought I was going to do that as well. But once I did get there, I really thought I was going to then do white collar criminal prosecution. It was just like a natural progression in terms of what I had done at the law firm. So I signed up for the credit card, the caseload in the misdemeanor section. It really steered away from a violent crime. I didn't want to do it. And then that's what kept drawing me in. It's what kept compelling me. Those were the cases that really drew me in emotionally and I couldn't get away from it. And eventually I ended up 
a homicide prosecutor. Oh my God. Right. For someone who really wanted to stay sort of like non-emotional or a little bit like as much of a transactional criminal attorney as possible, I really got drawn into the violent crime cases and absolutely loved it. What drew you to those cases specifically? The victims were a big part of it. And in my homicide cases where there isn't a victim, you're learning about the person through their family, through their community, through their network. You're seeing where a harm was done. And this probably wasn't the first time the person was victimized. There have probably been incidents before knowing where our victims come from, knowing the things that they encounter, that the system has probably failed them before. And so finding a moment where you connect with someone in a way that they've not found in the criminal justice system was so empowering um, and was so wonderful. Let's delve there for a second, actually. Was there a specific moment or a specific case that you can point to that really encompasses that feeling of connection, that ability to connect with someone in a way that they had not found in the criminal justice system? One of the cases for me that was a huge compelling turning point was I was able to prosecute a hate crime case against a Sikh Indian individual who had his turban ripped off and who was beaten to the point of being unconscious. And that was just a case that kept drawing me in. And it was a connection to the victim, the connection to the community groups who cared a lot about the prosecution or a case. Because it was a time where Sikh Americans were encountering incidents of assault and everyone was getting probation time for these assaults. And they were egregious. This was one of the first times where a person actually received prison time for it. And it was really validating to hear how important it was from the community groups. It was important that they showed up during the time of sentencing because it was really compelling. And so that sort of impact really motivated me to keep going and to keep pursuing more violent prosecutions. You know, they can be incredibly draining and incredibly hard. You see the potential impact it can have on a person's life. Yeah. And it really highlights, you know, when someone is victimized, it's not just that person. There are so many other people that are impacted. Like you said, the families, the communities, the people that have connections that are also feeling persecuted during that time as well. Not to take away from the person that actually was victimized, but that victim is not just one, it's many. It is. It is. And that sort of plays on both sides of the coin. There is a person who is victimized, but there's a larger family or community that is impacted. And so when a person decides to enter the criminal justice system, it not only impacts them, it impacts their larger community and that may impact their safety in living in a neighborhood that may impact their child's ability to keep going to the same school that may impact whether their mom can still live in the neighborhood. It has a far reaching impact and things that as a prosecutor, you have to be aware of when you're deciding to bring a victim into a case or actively decide to pursue a prosecution that you really have to weigh when making that decision. Absolutely. So you're at the U.S. Attorney's Office. You get drawn to these cases. So what happens next? You know, it was it was an interesting time because I had my daughter. And at the time when I went out on maternity leave, I had both a homicide caseload and just a few months 
prior to me going out on maternity leave, January 6, 2021 happened. And we all know what happened at the Capitol. And so my office was at the epicenter of those prosecutions. So a number of us were handed cases dealing with the January 6 rioters. So I handled half a dozen of those cases, as well as my homicide cases. I worked myself up until the day that I actually went into the hospital. And I was so grateful that I got to contribute to both of those caseloads as much as I did. But I think that at that point, it was a natural transition point because my husband's job moved us to California. And at that point, I think the life change that I was encountering and being, being a mom really made me reflect on what the next step was really going to look like for me. And I really thought I was going to be in overdrive for my entire career and really nothing was going to stop that. But I think it was a, a really needed pause, both physically taking me out of the city that like I only knew how to just keep grinding constantly. And that's just like how DC is. But also this life change helped me transition. And so when we moved to Los Angeles, it was a time of reflection for me and a time of really thinking about what I wanted to do to contribute and what I wanted to do to see meaningful change. So I thought about whether there was a space as a former prosecutor to contribute to the system in a meaningful way. And that's how I found For the People. And it's incredible because our organization works directly with prosecutors who are not only doing their day-to-day -day work, but want to think about some of those past cases. You know, there are times we all reflect and think about a person that we may have recommended for a sentence or a person that we may have prosecuted. And what are they doing now? How are they doing? Have they been released? If they've been released, are they doing better? Have they reoffended? What is happening? And we just never have the ability, the way the system is built, to think about it or to hear about success stories of how people are doing. So this organization allows prosecutors through a legal mechanism to go back and look at past cases, look at where a person may have been sentenced to an incredibly long sentence to which the office would just never ask for a sentence of that length anymore, or where a person has undergone serious rehabilitation and may deserve a second look and allows prosecutors to be part of that process at looking at those cases and hearing the humanity of people while also weighing really important factors of public safety. What are some of those factors? Are they going to endanger the community if they're released? How are victims going to feel when they hear that a person is going to be released early? And we take them through that very difficult process but also this very different experience for them, a very different side of prosecution that I think opens a little bit of the, the, the lens on the humanity of the people that we're prosecuting, that it's no fault of prosecutors. Like I, I was a human. I had a heart. I had emotions. I know all my colleagues do. We just don't have the capability to think about every single person in the same way as we're prosecuting. So this allows prosecutors to go back and look at people in a different way. And hopefully the goal of the organization is to eventually impact the culture of prosecutors to really think about how are we sentencing people on the front end? And are we using those experiences of resentencing 
to then shape the decisions that we're making on the front end of the criminal justice system. I really like this concept of reflection and looking back to see what happens after you sentence someone and where they are, because I think we can all agree that reflecting on how things evolve helps educate and inform how we can be better in the future. And so I think that's a very important closing of the loop. Is some of the work actually working to adjust current sentencing guidelines as well? Is there policy work around that? The the work is not really around adjusting current sentencing guidelines. It's addressing sentences where a person has been sentenced and looking back at those sentences. Those are legislative reforms that are certainly needed. And, and a lot of times, actually, when a mechanism like prosecutor-initiated resentencing, where we work, happens, there are other legislative reforms that happen with sentences. Can you give an example of that? So an example of that is we passed a law in Minnesota this past year. It was part of an omnibus bill that addressed a lot of other offense categories, those who were charged as an accomplice under felony murder statutes and looking at whether the person was truly liable for the felony murder that they participated in. So we see that oftentimes when you're talking to legislators about reform and looking back, it often coincides with other sentencing reforms that take place. But it what it does do is it allows prosecutors to think about the ways that they're recommending sentences in current cases. So how does that work? What is an approach that you take to help prosecutors think about ways they're recommending sentences? So we use a bunch of different tools, but one of the things we do is a really data-driven approach to have them look back at these old sentences and say, let's look at your prison population and let's look at everyone who's serving a certain amount of time for, let's say, unarmed burglaries. And let's break it down by those who were under the age of 18, who have served 10 plus years in prison. And they're shockingly 50 people that are still in prison and they've served 10 years for an unarmed burglary that they may have committed, let's say, when they were 17 years old. That automatically gets prosecutors to say, I want to look at those cases. I want to think about it. And then what it encourages prosecutors to do is when they're thinking about sentencing a person moving forward, even if the sentencing guidelines may have shifted, they're thinking about those resentencing cases and they're thinking, does this seem fair? Like I am now looking at cases 10 years down the line when I'm going to recommend the sentence. I'm going to be a little bit more thoughtful about what this means because I'm now participating in the resentencing process. And I know that 10 years down the line, I may think that this is not fair. It allows prosecutors to at least adjust their lens when they're making that initial sentencing recommendation. And that's the hope is for prosecutors to really think about the decisions that they're making. They already are. They're being very thoughtful about it. But I think having this lens eventually also impacts the way they might think about sentences. So you approach a prosecutor's office, you explain to them what you're doing. Take me through a process of how it works. Sure, sure. So what we do is we help make sure that there is a legal mechanism, first and foremost, for prosecutors to do it, whether it's helping to pass a state law that gives them the explicit mechanism or there is a law on the books 
that allows them to do it already. And then when we go and approach an office, we talk to them about how prosecutor-initiated resentencing works, if it's happening in other places in their state, or we talk about how it's happening in other parts of the country, because there are five states that have a prosecutor-initiated resentencing law, as well as multiple states that have an alternative mechanism that prosecutors can use. And we tell them our organization, made up of former prosecutors, we also now have former defense attorneys that are on board, walk you through the process from creating templates and guidelines through the entire case review process. So let's say we identify a case and say, okay, this person is serving a really long time. I really need to learn more about them though before I can make that decision. What is the data that you're looking at or what are some of the questions that you're asking to ascertain that? We do everything from reviewing a prosecutor's internal case file. We will take the person's prison records and understand what have they been doing since their time in prison? Have they been participating in positive programming? Have they taken steps to address some of the substance abuse issues? Have they gotten a job while they're in prison? Like, what are the things that they're really doing? Have they gotten into disciplinary issues? What are those disciplinary infractions? And we really dive into it. We look at letters of recommendation from either their support network outside of the prison or anyone within the prison that can vouch for them. Correctional officers are a huge source of that. If a correctional officer sticks their neck out and says, this person is actually an exemplary member of the community, they've been doing really incredible things, that goes a long way for a prosecutor um, to be able to vouch for them and resentencing. We take all of that. And then what we do, um, because we realize what's incredibly important is how is a person, we may resentence a person, that does not guarantee that the person is going to do well once they're released. So another important component of it is building a reentry plan for the person. And this is where we work with stakeholders. So we primarily work with prosecutors, but we work with defense attorneys as well as community-based organizations to identify the things that a person is going to need. Can you give an example of that? Let's say a person was, you know, gang affiliated and it led to substance abuse issues. And that's why they committed their crime. We look at those factors and say, okay, when they're released, does it make the most sense for them to go back to their community? Is there another place where it's actually going to be safer and better for them in their progression to go elsewhere to live? If they had substance abuse issues, what have they been doing during their time in prison? And then how can we continue that treatment outside of prison? And so we'll help to formulate a plan to really ensure the person's success. And this is more reentry planning than a person receives when they're just naturally being re released. Oftentimes people are getting gate money and they're on potentially probation. A person is checking in, but there's really no plan for how they're going to transition back, which is why you see such a high recidivism rate. Otherwise, in cases, prosecutor-initiated resentencing with the help of For the People thinks about this in a really holistic manner because we know for our organization, for this to be viable, people have to be successful. And prosecutors also have to feel like people are successful when they're getting out. And it's really important for us 
to make sure that people feel supported. So that's like a little bit of sort of the, just the legal support that we provide when we identify a case. It's not a little. I mean, that seems like so much. So <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. So one of the things that I found is to be a hot topic right now is AI-driven tools to anticipate recidivism when considering sentencing. And um, I'm curious if you've encountered that. Have you seen that? Is that something that's on the radar for you guys? There are certainly tools that have been built in through departments of corrections for decades now that sort of predict a person's recidivism rate and that oftentimes shapes the sentence a person is going to get, right? They take the, the sort of like criminal history score as well as factors of how the person has been raised and the egregiousness of the crime and all those things. So that is that predictive software. I'm sure we'll only get more automated um, as as AI proliferates. I think it's interesting because I hope the prosecutor-initiated resentencing really challenges that notion, especially as prosecutors are willing to look at more serious cases. Some of those softwares may not necessarily predict that they would be successful. That's where I think it's really important where there is a human connection. I understand that those softwares have a purpose. And I understand that also doing this sort of in-depth reentry planning isn't always possible in cases. But we've seen it make a world of a difference. And then someone who cares about the person while they're out in a meaningful way has helped stop recidivism in just countless cases that we've encountered, because that's also part of recidivism. It's not just when a person gets out. Recidivism studies are often based on three years of when a person is out because a person's transition has different periods. You may feel great when you're out, and then the reality of being out without the structure of prison life takes place. And so we see those transition periods and we know how important it is to have continuous support. Yeah. And and when I meant hot topics, I meant the ethical issues around mm-hmm. bias in the AI tools that are yes. used to yeah. anticipate recidivism. I, I guess what I meant by that is just helping, like you said, challenge those tools, especially knowing yeah. there are biases there with that human element. You need that. Right. Absolutely. And it comes into play even at the sentencing stage and carries through and they're all connected. The sentencing disparities that take place as a result of people's backgrounds and black and brown people getting longer sentences, those are all then feeding into and are part and parcel of the recidivism tracker that then persuades judges in the criminal justice system to want to recommend longer sentences. They're all tied together. Exactly. 100%. So I'm going to make sure that we start getting to our rapid fire questions. So uh, what does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law to me means when you put someone under trial by fire, it does a lot of things for a person. And I don't always mean it in a great way, just because that was my upbringing as a lawyer. I was told to do things and to do assignments without a lot of training and a lot of guidance. And for me, I take the opposite approach of letting a person learn, but with guidance and with care. It's just a different school of thought. For me, giving a person the tools to make sure that they feel successful and they feel supported and they don't feel shamed when they make a mistake 
is incredibly important. And I think as lawyers and some of the different legal positions I've had, it's like you pride yourself on not asking the questions. You pride yourself on you learn on your own. And when you go to a partner or when you go to a supervisor, you're seen as weak. That was incredibly demoralizing and incredibly hard. And so the way I try to encourage people that I manage and my mentality is that I'm here to guide you. I'm here to help you. And I want to create the clarity in that guidance so that you're not left trying to figure out a bunch of questions. And when you don't get the assignment, feel completely discouraged because you didn't have the tools set up for success. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? I think a lot of people misunderstand the hearts of prosecutors and assume that prosecutors don't care or think about people and their lens into the criminal justice system is one-sided. And I challenge that notion again and again with every prosecutor that I've worked with. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? To encourage opportunities where a person might be interested in how the law intersects with other things. Um, one of the things that, you know, in law school, I found a little disappointing was a way that the legal industry can really funnel students through the law firms and thinking more meaningfully about public interest opportunities and the way I was so passionate about government and politics. I wish I was exposed to opportunities that I didn't have to necessarily always seek out for myself that were potentially provided through my law school that encouraged me to think about post-law school opportunities differently. And then also in the legal industry, especially traditional entities like law firms, to recognize that new associates or law clerks who might be coming in may be really interested in those public interest opportunities and plug them into things. And don't think of it as a money suck or you're not generating profits by doing that work. But these are people who are really interested and motivated and committed to public interest. And ultimately, if they go off and do that work, it enriches the legal community. It enriches you as a law firm to say that they're an alumni of your law firm. It does really positive things. So don't think of those opportunities as a negative, but as a bonus when you're identifying people who are interested. That's an excellent answer. I love that. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. Your career is so long and it is in so many ways you will surprise yourself with every opportunity that I took. I never thought I would do the next thing that I did. And so if you're curious about an opportunity, but you're really not quite sure and it doesn't fit with the plan that you've had for yourself, be courageous and be adventurous. No step in your legal career is ever going to define you forever because these careers are so long. So final question, what do you do for self-care? I'm lucky to live in a really sunny and beautiful place. I live 15 minutes away from the beach, so I try to make it out there or for a hike as much as I can. And then exercise is a really important part of self-care for me. Just moving and 
making sure that I'm not just sitting at my desk all day is a really important aspect of self-care and then really just enjoying it with the people that I love and care about. Thank you so much, Pooja, for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out or connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? I'm on LinkedIn and my organization's website is for the people, S-O-R-T-H-E-P-P-L. So people abbreviated.org. I'm on that website as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.